and welcome to the RPG Concierge, a podcast that explores a new aspect of tabletop role-playing games every season. Being that this is our first season, it seemed appropriate to tackle what might be the biggest hurdle in playing RPGs, the beginning. How do you even begin playing, finding a group, and overcoming the multitude of concerns that every new player faces? We will tackle all these topics and more. I'm your RPG concierge, Finnegan Justice Murphy, and our topic today is world building. And joining me is a very special guest, Eli Brasa. Hello, Eli. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to be here to talk about this stuff. Awesome. I'm really glad to have you. You and I have not played any games before. Correct. But there's a cameo role for you coming up in the game that we're playing. And it's just been fascinating working with you. Everything's virtual these days. And so we've been emailing back and forth. And just the the work that you've been doing on this character has been incredible. And so I thought it might be an interesting topic and an interesting perspective for some of our listeners to get into is to sort of figure out a a little bit about your process. I also know that you are the creator and performer and a whole bunch of other hats that you wear in a podcast called The Far Meridian, which has a lot of world building going on in there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've got so many questions that I'd like to ask you. But before we get into that, let's introduce you a little bit to our listeners um, with a couple of quick questions just to get a bit of your background. So When you were growing up, what was your gaming situation like? So we didn't really play any RPGs growing up. I mean, I played pretend with my friends and whatnot. Um, But as far as like actual games, it was mostly board games, the classic Monopoly, which always got heated, of course. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's it's kind of the way it's designed. Exactly. Um, But we also did play computer games. My brothers and I would fight over the one laptop we all had to share. Um, and we would play things like uh, Heroes Might and Magic, uh, 2, 3, 5, and 7. We also played um, StarCraft. I was a big Kerrigan fan. So, you know, when she went Zerg, I was like, what? Blew my mind. Amazing. I typically picked Protoss to play. Um, but, yeah, when Kerrigan went Zerg, I was like, guess it's time to try out the Zerg. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I didn't really start playing, like, RPGs until... I think either like towards the end of college or right after college. Okay. And and what, uh, first off, Heroes of Might and Magic is like one of my keystone video games that I play and I'm not good at it at all. Yeah. I just want to like settle in and build up my little kingdom and max out everything and just wander around and pick up, you know, loose treasure and find artifacts and stuff. Uh, but there's that whole you have to fight everybody aspect to it that always kind of gets me. Yeah, uh, I, I got really big into like the map building, like create your own Heroes Might Magic game for Heroes 3. Uh-huh. Um, and I would always put all of the resources where I thought the player would start. But then when I actually would try to play the game I made, of course, the game would always put me as far away from those resources as possible. <laughs> and I was like, how can I figure this out um, so I can essentially cheat my way into winning um but yeah no i loved i loved those games and it was interesting too because it was uh like my first introduction to like a strategy based game and Mm -hmm. then as it progressed and it became more of like a first person shooter style game like with um might magic day of the destroyer was the one that i played uh did not realize it wasn't critically well received because apparently it was like a ripoff of one of the earlier ones i don't know i was a kid Hmm. um but yeah so then that was kind of 
an introduction to getting more of like nitty gritty character detail you know like what can my necromancer do what can my dragon do like how can i get the spells so i can fly and stuff like that yeah cool that's awesome i didn't know they transitioned to a first person shooter one I think it's, Um, like, under the, like, Might and Magic umbrella, and so there might be a difference between, like, Heroes Might and Magic and then Might and Magic. I, like, I dove down this rabbit hole years ago, and I've (laughs) forgotten most of it. Sure, that's fair. Um, Awesome. Okay, so you said that you didn't get into RPGs until late in college or after college. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what got your attention and, and what drew you into it. It's funny because I usually remember starting D&D with my little brother, but now that I've thought about it, my sophomore year of college, we actually did play one session with a friend. He designed this like little circus storyline or something like that, Um, but we only played that one session. It did not turn into a whole campaign just because we were all, you know, overcommitted college students. Uh, But then I didn't really seriously get into it until after college when my younger brother asked if I would want to play a game with him and two of his friends. So we did the character creation process all together. And then the following session, we started to play. And it's interesting, like now that I have transitioned to like trying out being a DM and I'm watching all the videos and reading all the things my little brother has recommended to me, I can like see where the influences were for his very first session with us. Like Matt Colville Uh, has a really great episode on like DMing and watching the episode. I was like, oh, Raphael was just doing a kind of a version of what Matt Colville did for his first session because he was like still figuring out how to DM. So like that Uh was actually really interesting. That's cool. That's very cool. I do want to touch a little bit on your experiences being a new DM as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can save that for for later on. So the one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that you are creating this character for a game of mine and your process in creating it has been pretty unique as far as uh, as far as my experience goes with players putting a character together. And and that's because you are you're you're very focused on some of the nuance of the character mm-hmm. which I I find that um and maybe this is because a lot of my my history in GMing has been with a lot of brand new players. And so as a brand new player, you're sort of like, you know, drinking from the fire hose, right? Yeah. So you've got all of this information coming at you and you're trying to pick a thing that you think is going to be fun to play in the long term or the short term or whatever. Um, And when you're putting that character together, there's not a whole lot of questions beyond how do I make this work? And what's been so refreshing with the way that you're doing this, which is something I hope that our, our listeners can take some some uh, strategy away from, is you're focusing in on some very fine details, which as a as a GM, it's helping me a lot with with world building beyond just your character, because we're talking about cultural impact, we're talking about art, we're talking about um, some sort of magical stuff. But um, do you want to? I guess we should pull the shroud back a little bit and talk a little bit about what the character is that you're making. For sure. The character that I'm making, essentially when I was invited to be 
a cameo in your campaign. I was so excited because I've heard about this campaign for since almost since as long as it's been going on. Uh, I'm dating one of the players, like full disclosure. So uh, I immediately was like, okay, like what can I play? But I'm also the type of player at this point where I always think like, what can I get away with? (laughs) And my little brother will attest. He's like, you, some of your one-off characters, like (laughs) you just test me in a way. But anyways, I love skeletons. So, and I've been trying to convince my little brother to let me play a skeleton for years, but it's never worked out for one reason or another. Sure. So that's why I asked you if I could be a skeleton and you were so into it. So I was so excited. (laughs) Um, And then going from there, just because I recognize this is an established campaign, this is a very established world. I really wanted to respect all of, you know, the, the time, creativity and work that like you've put into building it with your players. So we had a conversation about, you know, what are the different areas of this world? What hasn't been explored yet? Um, and, you know, you were very welcoming, you know, saying like, you can kind of pick wherever you want to be. Here's where the players are at right now. Uh, and we settled on the skeleton being from this kind of far off land that the, the players haven't visited yet, but have met people who are from there. Um, and mm-hmm. there's, you know, this really like beautiful lore involving like the gods and whatnot. And from there, we kind of started extrapolating more of like what this character could be. So because this is a very seafaring people, uh, my skeleton is going to be a shipwright. Um, and we kind of figured out like what type of skeleton she would be. How does her being a, you know, skeleton like from the dead interact with the culture of that people um so i that's what i really have been enjoying about it is that it has been such a conversation with you about like culture and whatnot since that's what really intrigues me when we're talking about like fantasy and like world building and whatnot um and also like i'm i just love aesthetic so i so many of my questions are like okay but wouldn't it look cool if like we did this yeah one of the one of the things that has come up is this concept. So there are there are two major pieces to the development of this character that have really hooked me. And those are first, what are the, how do I word this question? Oh my God. What are the impacts on the character from whatever ritual it was that helped create you as a living skeleton? So when you were resurrected as a skeleton, are there any marks left behind? And then the second thing was, if this is from a culture that is seafaring or or is whatever, they have their own kind of cultural background, but are tattoos a part of that? And how would those be represented in the character as well if it's a skeleton? Those two sections, I guess there's a third as well, which was about the the clothing that the skeletons would wear as kind of a a callback to their life before they were dead and being very rich and flowing. So, so yeah. um, What, what were some of the concepts that you came up with? Cause I mean, we worked this out together, but all of these ideas are coming from you 100%. Um, And I'm trying to go back through our email now to find like some of the specifics. But um, if you want to talk about that a little bit, that'd be cool. I believe because we were talking about like, I know with like shipwrights, there's they typically have like a symbol on them to represent like what their job is essentially. So I was thinking like, okay, 
you know, like sailors often have like tattoos and whatnot. Would there be, say, like carvings into a skeleton bone? Um, I also was thinking about like, would they even like dye their bones like different colors? I don't know if that's a thing that you can do, but, um, you know, would they like say wrap their bones in leather or would they need to have say a certain type of clothing that might hide a little bit of the fact that they're a skeleton because not all cultures are big fans of walking skeletons um and then i know specifically with um the process of this character being raised back from the dead we wanted to um like imbue it with this specific steel that the culture has um and so this is actually where the class came into play where i was thinking like what what kind of class do i want to play like what classes haven't i played yet and i realized i hadn't played a ranger so i thought okay like what if this character died from fighting some monster because she was a ranger her Mm -hmm. ribs were crushed that's how she died and so they replaced her sternum with this steel and like filled in all the cracks in her ribs with that um because one that just looks so dope uh and two <laughs> like you know it does it does indicate something about her character um so I, that's some of the stuff we discussed i love this concept that you came up with of the using the steel so uh for our listeners in this game um, one of the big plot points is that uh, long, long ago, a god was summoned to the mortal plane, and the ancestors of this group killed that god. And that god fell into the sea and expanded and became this this thing. And so they have been mining the body of this dead god, and that has become the cornerstone of their civilization. It's the their greatest export if you will and so it has all of these fantastical properties to it and so using it you you said uh kintsugi style right yeah uh, which is the the japanese art of fixing broken things by soldering them together back together with gold which is beautiful right it, it highlights the break um it makes the imperfection stand out but also be beautiful at the same time Mm -hmm. which i love that idea as far as like okay so part of their resurrection ritual would have to be using this steel in some way right like some there's religions that surround this metal now and all that kind of thing and so i just i loved that idea i was so excited you like you were fine with it because all of these, I feel like it's like, yes, I'm creating this character, but I'm also constantly like asking permission. Like, is this okay? Like, I don't want to step on any toes. Yeah. Uh, I just have a lot of respect for your game. So that's why it's constantly like, is this fine? But also I, you're just enthusiastic about everything I throw at you. So that's been really exciting. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's... So my process of world building is to is to use large brush strokes in my world building and then hopefully and so far so good but hopefully then as the players interact with it that is where the finer details get put in mm-hmm. and so i have this concept for this culture but i don't have any of the fine detail stuff and so what that does for me when i'm running the game is i then get surprised and excited too as well as the players when something gets revealed. So for example, um, we recently, the group went to a 
town in a volcano. It, it has been on the map since day one. And I had a brief idea of what's going on there. But then the group went there kind of quickly and without any warning to me. <laughs> so I didn't have a whole lot of hooks or anything put in there, um, any story hooks or anything. And so when we got there, it was a question of, okay, well, here's the lore that you're exploring here. How does that manifest? And then the players got to do things like name what the shops are and who's in them. And we discovered that there's a large population of bugbears that live there, for example, which until then was not the case. That's awesome. <laughs> and that they, they do this really intricate mural work with obsidian and things like that on the walls as they mine deeper and deeper into this volcano, which is crazy cool. And I had no idea that that was there and it was really fun. So in working with you, it has been delightful to be able to hand this part of the world building aspect off to someone. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate, you know, asking if this is okay and stuff like that. I think that's probably how it ought to work when you're co-creating a thing, mm -hmm. which I believe we're co-creating a thing. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Okay. So you told me that you played in a game that was based loosely on Friday Night Lights. Is that right? Right. So the two RPGs that I've played that I can remember that I've played are D&D, &D, obviously, and um, mm -hmm. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, which is a TTRPG that some friends made. And it's basically about, like, the highs and lows of high school football. And, like, I'm going to preface this with, like, I don't care about football i don't really care about sports very much i love sports movies though like enthralling sure. so i was really excited to play this we actually were the beta testers for it and essentially there's you know several different roles you can be you roll your die to figure out which one you are uh, and there's a role and then there's like what's going on at home kind of thing and mm, sure right that there is no gm for the game basically whoever is like leading that specific like scene or whatever will always change and so you role play what's happening leading up to the game there's a few roles that you make as to like what the drama is so to speak and then here comes the game how well the social situation happened before does impact the game there's a bunch oh, of different cool. roles to decide if you win or lose and then you keep moving on until you get to you know like the playoffs and then like the championships <laughs> like is it like this is our year i know we say that every year but this year is our year and sure. it's so much fun it gets so goofy like i think i played the kicker shane and she had she was always hot so she kept wearing crop tops everywhere um <laughs> we were like one of the few football teams i believe we decided it took place in canada uh okay and oh gosh i can't even remember like what else happened she like lives with her older brother because who knows what happens to her parents and then some of like my teammates were um one of them was a teen werewolf <laughs> um yes which, this t plot twist yeah, oh my god they, we actually <laughs> had to um 
I think they might have ultimately decided that the teen werewolf would be an optional role because if you have a teen werewolf role, then the entire plot becomes about there is a teen werewolf. Yes. Um, and I can't even remember what the other ones were, but you also, each player has to say a local scandal from their hometown and then we all decide like which one is going to be the local scandal that's happening in that town that like the plot also revolves around um it's it's so fun and Uh goofy and it's basically like if someone can't show up or if our gm for like the main campaign uh for D &D had didn't have time to do too much setup then we're like oh like we'll just play a little bit of clear eyes full hearts so it's it's a very fun game that like once you learn the rules it's really easy to just drop into and and have Uh some fun with it and like i don't know i named my character shane after shane falco played by keanu reeves and the replacements like you can be like as goofy as you want with it i have never (laughs) seen friday night lights but apparently fans of that also like this game so nice yeah cool so um Let's take a quick break right here to introduce some friends of our show, and we'll be right back. We're rolling. Mark. Hello, I'm Sky. And I'm Ford. Together, we form the writing partnership of L. Skyford. We're excited to bring you Booklandia, a new podcast about books. On Booklandia, we review books, mostly. Honestly, mostly romance books. We'll occasionally discuss book topics, like our favorite and least favorite romance book tropes. Maybe one day I'll learn what a cinnamon roll is. Maybe. Perhaps we'll also dive into my psyche and why I hate the enemies to lovers trope and why it's such a popular one. Is it because you're a robot? Probably. We will absolutely spoil books for you. We will absolutely f***ing curse. And you will leave each episode knowing just how sexy we thought each book was. Did it make us want to get naked? Maybe. I'm definitely naked. (laughs) Probably. So am I. So please join (laughs) us on Booklandia, (laughs) where each book is a whole world to explore. And we're out. Hello and welcome to the Annabelle H. Godfrey Historic Estate and Museum. Thank you for joining us on the Godfrey's world-famous audio guide. I'll be your host for the duration of your time here at the estate, and look forward to enlightening you as to the history and unique beauty of Annabelle's eclectic collection of art, antiquities, and curiosities. But before we begin, I must go over a few notices and estate rules. Firstly, on the chance that you failed to read the fine print when checking out this audio guide, and are currently standing in the middle of our atrium, waiting for a staff member to come and collect you, this is a self-guided tour. Each audio guide is equipped with a GPS tracking device, which triggers the commentary for the nearest collection item. This provides the dual benefit of a custom experience for you, and helping the Godfrey staff locate unreturned audio guides. Many audio guides are discovered abandoned in dark and seldom-traversed corners of the estate, their patrons nowhere to be found. Which leads me to my second point of business. Stay out of the shadows. Thirdly, breaks in commentary as you move between collection items may be filled with historical tidbits about the estate, details about current or upcoming exhibits and offerings, general announcements, or words from our sponsor. Do not be alarmed when these start playing. And no, you cannot mute or skip them. Fourthly, and this should go without saying, 
Do not touch any collection items. This is for your own safety. That's all for now. Shall we begin? The Godfrey Audio Guide is a fiction podcast that blends horror, sci-fi, and art history, both real and imagined, and which guides the listener through the mysterious Godfrey Estate and Museum. Interested in taking the tour? Find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. See you at the museum. We are back with Eli, and I wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive into world building with you. Now that we are familiar with who you are, we know your love of skeletons and sports movies. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to, th- to get into a little bit of the games that you've run and how you set those up. And I guess because we're trying to tailor this to audiences that are sort of on the peripheral of, of gaming mm-hmm. or that are sort of flirting with getting started, what are some expectations that you have around the table uh, when you're running a game? Um, so uh, how do you hope that your audience will interact with the world that you've set? How rigid are your borders? And I'm going to ask 1,000 questions, and I want you to answer all of them. I mean, <laughs> listen, I can talk till the cows come home. Well, okay, I'm going to start a little bit with how I prepped my game. So I have only DM'd once, and it was for a one-shot that I actually designed myself. Uh, I keep forgetting that like you can like buy one-shots and... like buy like campaigns and stuff like that like you don't have to design it yourself but um I actually really enjoyed designing it myself because I feel like it it did give me a greater understanding of the mechanics of how DMing was gonna work so that's just what worked for me um to prep I did go to all of my friends who GM and ask for their advice Uh, a few friends actually had one shots that they had designed that they sent to me so I could kind of see how they structured things um so yeah it was a lot of talking to people first just to see like what the different approaches are since I know that you know everyone has their own style of GMing and it was helpful for me to figure out what mine would be uh after I did that since I've been playing for a few years I already knew who my players were going to be for this one shot right so it's going to be um my two brothers, um, Jose, who is in your game, my boyfriend, um, and one of my other friends. And so as I was designing it, I knew overall what the plot was going to be. Uh, it was a story that like took place on the solstice in this town, and they have a special ritual that they do on the solstice uh, that basically like honors the relationship with nature and like how we are all one and um they basically like make these like crowns out of different materials that then bring to life these statues who are the personification of nature um so they can all celebrate together uh and then the plot is that sounds amazing (laughs) thank you and then the plot (laughs) was that um some of these crowns were stolen a few days before so the players have to figure out like okay who who stole them and Mm -hmm. I knew that general idea. So then what I did was I actually I got on the phone with each of my players. I actually brought um, the notebook that I took all my notes in. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and I kind of I went through and I asked, you know, okay, what are things that you like 
when you play like what do you like to engage with is it combat is it role playing is it puzzles um what's something that you haven't really gotten to try yet and you're curious about that you would like to try uh what is your play style you know like do you like to kind of take the lead do you like to strategize um are you comfortable with like the gm calling on you or would you rather kind of sit back a little bit and only like verbally participate when you feel comfortable doing so uh so I really wanted to ensure that like you know like I'm still designing this game and whatnot but I wanted to make sure I was designing a game that my players felt comfortable playing yeah that's awesome so those are fantastic questions for a session zero Mm -hmm. um if you're um if you're a new player out there or a new GM, take note. These are really great suggestions and and really great bits of information, not only for the GM to have, but I think it gives the player the opportunity before sitting down at the table to think about those things. What do I want out of this game? Why am I playing this, right? So all of those questions that you're asking are wonderful. Um, specifically, the ones that I that I like are what kind of game are you hoping to play mm-hmm. and what is your play style i think those two like really cut to the quick of what are we doing here yeah <laughs> and how do we want to do it um so fantastic kudos to you that's a great list oh, well thank done. you i mean you know i stole from the best so to speak <laughs> i got a lot of good advice and watched a lot of youtube awesome nice so yeah um yeah sorry so okay. i interrupted you before um you were telling me about um, how you started world building your your game. Right. So um, taking that into account, I started thinking of like, okay, what type of characters are they going to run into? This is a mystery. Like they need to solve like who stole the crown. Um, so I kind of, I like made a list of the characters and then I made a list of the information the characters had. And then I kind of like gave myself a checklist to like make sure that the characters are like hitting what hints they need. But I also made sure to like put in some red herrings and whatnot. Um, I did put in some opportunity for combat because one of my players did like combat. But I knew that since this was going to be a little bit more of a mystery that like I didn't want the combat to be become some huge thing that would then take up all of the session and I was aiming for it to be a one shot so like one session in and out Mm -hmm. like let's see if we can do this um and basically like I I didn't want to get too detailed because I think at that point you for me at least like I can't really be as flexible as the players might need if I have a specific idea of like how things should go Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it was also helpful just for me to keep in the back of my mind, okay, if the players are going to end up taking more time to get to certain hints or whatever, to feel comfortable switching things around. Um, I think that was a really big, important part. I also did design the map for it. And I think that was helpful for me to just visually figure out where things are and where people needed to go. Um, I think I used them like free website or something for that and I also decided that we would not use combat maps so I had a general map of like the township and the area Um, but since this wouldn't be heavy combat any combat that did happen I figured I was like you know what I think it'll be fine if we 
just use the theater of the mind, so to speak. Yes. Um, yeah. So that was an active choice for me. And also because I just didn't quite feel confident in my ability to handle roll 20 at that point. Because like, that's what we would have used. Um, so for me, it was very much about like, okay, I'm trying to figure out what my players will have fun with and be comfortable, but also make sure that like, I feel comfortable handling the resources I'm giving myself to handle. Yes. I didn't want to overwhelm myself as well. Um, so I think like that was one of the big things I took into account because, you know, we all have these like pie in the sky dreams, but I wanted to be realistic and make sure that I could also stay focused and not get overwhelmed. Yeah, that's excellent. I like your your if if you're going for a really fast style of game, like you want your one shot to be legit a one shot, yeah. you know, four to six hours or something like that on a Saturday with your friends. So going without battle maps, I think that it's an interesting choice because battle maps can speed things up and also slow things down. So we can then get into the nitty gritty, but I prefer theater of the mind style combat as well. Mm -hmm. I have adapted <laughs> because I know that so many of my players and, and I think particularly new players, it it's potentially easier. Well, I don't know if it's easier. It depends on the mm -hmm. player, I guess, but um, for the people that I've played with, it's, it's a little bit easier to understand, you know, somebody saying I cast this spell that goes out 30 feet and being able to look on a grid and count the squares and yeah. say, okay, that'll get me to this character here. There's some flexibility that you gain doing theater of the mind um, from a GM's perspective. You have a little bit more control over the time yeah. that the combat takes because you can make decisions like, yes, they are close enough or no, they are not. Um, or yes, there are more people or no, they run away mm -hmm. or there are not. Um, whereas if you're in a battle map, I suppose you can still have them run away. It, I, I, I think that it's a little bit easier without seeing all of those things on there because I think players tend to count okay there are six bad guys that means I have to do these things yeah. or whatever so yeah I, I prefer as a player to play without them yeah and I, I think it varies because I was figuring out like okay I want to if we're not using a battle map I need to make sure that like possible combat situations are the type that wouldn't necessarily need a battle map so I had some like wolves from the woods that they could have possibly fought you know what I mean so like not super high stakes like you know encountering another group with like a spellcaster or something like that um i tried sure. to keep it simple and then um because it's interesting i was talking to my younger brother about why he loves he loves battle maps he really loves using them and i think he is definitely a little bit more of a strategy person but he also like as a gm wants to make sure that all of his rulings are fair and consistent and so that's why he really loves using battle maps because it helps him make sure that, you know, whatever the roles end up being, he can consistently make rulings on them um, so that, you, you know, he's not unintentionally changing how he addresses a role or something like that. Um, and that, that was actually something that got brought up with one of the other players for this one shot. Um, was that like one of the things that he really looks for um my older brother was consistent ruling is that he wants to make sure that like whatever rules are being used and enforced are doing so consistently because then mm -hmm. for him he's like well then it like just doesn't seem fair 
if things change or or whatnot. So it, it was interesting. I think they like a little bit more rigidity in the rules because they are the type of people that like do really deep dives into Dungeons and Dragons and they engage with the community a lot. Like they've been watching Critical Role. I haven't seen an episode. It mm-hmm. intimidates me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think like that was really important to kind of get an understanding of my players and like, you know, how, how flexible... I could be how flexible like they expect me to be and whatnot and obviously you know you have things like rule of cool where it's like all right you might have not barely made that role but like we're gonna do it anyway because that's dope so yeah there I don't want to like make it seem like I'm inflexible or like they are inflexible but I think it was just like the mutual respect between players and GM is important and making sure that everyone is being yeah. treated fairly yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I think I tend to play more in the fast and loose uh, category with the rules. I love it. Um, <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. Uh, but I I totally respect the, the sort of culture of, no, we're going to use the rules and we're still going to have that. It's not a detriment to having a good yeah. time, I guess, is the thing. Having Having rules be very clear and detailed can help the players because then they understand where the boundaries are and what their limits mm-hmm. are and that's great i tend to lean more on i i love that i have not heard it before i don't know if it's a thing or not but the rule of cool is fantastic uh so i i tend to lean more in that direction yeah. because uh I, I did an episode recently with jack hart uh he was our guest and we were talking about um how to handle the rules and overcoming the many, many, the ocean of books and rules yeah. and stuff for any particular game, right? It can be a little intimidating. And he said that for him, and I think I agree with him here, I think he and I are on the same page, the fun of the game, I'm probably not going to word this the way that he did, which was wonderful, but um, the fun of the game is had after people leave the table and they talk about the fun stuff that they did. Yeah. Nobody talks about um, I did this thing because the rules allowed me to. They say I clobbered an ogre or yeah. whatever. And it was really cool. And, you know, so I, I tend to lean more on the cinematic, what what makes for this story to be um, cool enough to be told yeah. again, uh, in the moment, which is a little bit tricky, but um, the rules are a great backbone mm-hmm. to that. They're just not. I don't know, a super hard foundation for me. Yeah, no, and I think that makes sense because it's it, it's been interesting like working with you because I feel like at least like building the character, we've gotten like very like deep into like the nitty gritty of like the culture and everything. And it's, it's interesting because I keep having to remind myself that like you are kind of like a little bit more flexible, um, <laughs> which, you know, is, is fine. Cause like I said, I really respect all the different GM styles. And I think, cause one of my favorite things, because I know my younger brother does have a little bit like of a harder line when it comes to rules, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to break them as a result. <laughs> and I, and that's been like really fun. You know, like I, I asked him, I was like, Hey Raf, um, can I play a character who's invisible? Cause I just constantly want to push him. And he's like, absolutely not i'm like okay but like what if i figured out a way and he's like fine we can talk about it and so uh we came up with this half giant who was cursed to be invisible and if she doesn't remove the curse in a year she will cease to be and all memory of her will be gone and 
Yeah, no, Ooh. like really, like the stakes are very high, and she's a bard too, and so we're like, okay, like, but she's always invisible, but her clothes are not. Oh, so we were like sneaking into this library, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna like sneak in, and he's like, you're wearing bright yellow clothing, like, and I'm like, fine, I strip naked and I walk in, <laughs> and so I think like that's been really fun of like being like, I know you love your rules but I'm going to figure out a way to have shenanigans anyways. And it's like, and it's such a delight. Like we have, we have so much fun, like in that manner, I think. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I think that was only for a one shot. I don't think I ever visited that poor, that poor half giant. Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) I have a whole laundry list of like my one shot characters. I'm, I will be honest as a player. um, If I'm showing up for a one shot, I have like, done one of those character generators five minutes before I show up to the table and I'm literally looking over the character sheet as the GM is like introducing us to the one shot like I do things last oh, minute um, with one shots because I love flying by the seat of my pants oftentimes oh. um, so it's been interesting for this cameo is like we're doing like a lot of planning and whatnot and I also think it is because like I've never played with you before so I'm like okay I want to be like a good player and show up prepared uh, my little brother, he gets what he gets. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so let's let's uh, just in our last, I guess we got what a few minutes left here. Um, let's talk a little bit about the world building in your podcast, The Farmer Again. Yeah. Um, I I started listening to it recently, and it is awesome. Uh, it's fantastic. So, uh, listeners, if you're uh, curious to pick up another podcast that you want to listen to. Check out the Far Meridian. It's great. So I guess I'll, I'll let you do a, a pitch. Right. Um, and then I have some questions for you about like coming up with the world and how things relate to Sweet. each other. So the Far Meridian is about a young woman named Perry who is agoraphobic and she lives in this converted lighthouse. And one day she wakes up and her home is somewhere else. And so at the end of each day, um, this fog rolls in and then in the morning it rolls away and we are in a new location so it's really about this person who has isolated herself from the world learning how to reconnect to the world as well as herself so it's very character based there is a kind of a loose plot where her brother went missing years ago so she's now using this opportunity to look for him while not having to be far from home it's so interesting to me so I th- when I was listening to it, I listened to the it, it went through the episodes that I had downloaded and then it just started with the latest episode. Oh, um, my. <laughs> and so I, I yeah, so I heard a thing that I don't think I should have heard yet. Um, but do you have recurring characters outside of Perry? Yes. So she does encounter someone on her travels who then becomes her little travel buddy. Um, and his name is Benny. He's very, he's very, like, into the idea of a traveling lighthouse, right? Um, like, she basically accidentally kidnaps him because he gets really sick. (laughs) And she's like, I need to help this person, but also the fog is coming in. So I guess he's coming with me. And, uh, so their relationship, there's definitely, like, friction there with, like, just the type of person Perry is and the type of person Benny is. Uh, we do have a villain her name is the tattered woman 
and she's this kind of insidious figure in Perry's life and other people's lives. And yeah, then we also, obviously we have like people like, we have flashbacks with Perry's older brother. Uh, We actually do end up meeting her parents in season two. And there's, there's a couple other recurring characters. Um, But I will say the kind of, the main thing of this show is really showcasing new people that she meets every episode. Well, I shouldn't say mm-hmm. new people because sometimes they're not always people, but uh, <laughs> new new characters <laughs> every episode. Um, so to tie this into a little bit, what we're talking about with role-playing games is the, the concept of world building, which we've talked about a whole lot on this episode, but never really defined. Mm-hmm. So... Um, not to put you on the spot here, but how would you define world building? Uh, how I would define world building, I think, are, for me, the way that I think about it are the, like, mechanics and aesthetics of the world, right? So, like, how does the world look, or, like, how does the world work, and how is that then expressed, right if mm-hmm. that's the that's the best way that i can describe it as far as how i think about world building yeah i think that's great um the idea of the mechanics of the world is really great i i also think that there has to or that history has a little bit yes, to do with it definitely um what uh, when i when i talk about running a game or or anything like that i tell people that the things that they need to know if you're going to run a game are what are the things that have happened already mm-hmm what are the motivations of your antagonist and um and the antagonist resources i guess like what what how far of a reach do they have how much power do they have and then the third thing is what are things that have enough momentum by the time we start the story that they're they're inevitably going to happen anyway regardless of what the players do like what's the the momentum of inertia right going to insist happens the reason that I was so that I'm so interested to talk about like your your crafting of the far meridian world is because it's this really great story and that's what RPGs mm-hmm. are. Um, they're sitting around and telling a story with your friends. Right. And so there's world building opportunities and RPGs for character creation. Um, as as you come up with your own character, there's world building opportunities with helping to, I don't know, come up with some interesting little piece of the world here and there, right? Um, like our our players <laughs> uh, created a restaurant in my game called the Black Spot, where they, it's a pirate adventure themed bar that they go to and try to win this pancake eating contest. Amazing pieces of eight by eight. And that, of like, I didn't come up with that. That didn't happen. I, I made a map, and it was on a piece of paper that had a hole punch in it. And so when I scanned it in, that hole punch turned into a black circle. Uh, and the building that landed there, they decided was the black spot, and that's the whole lore that they generated. That's amazing. Right, kind of fun. Um, so with regards to, like, crafting the world, um, you said the the mechanics and... Um, sorry. What was the other, um, the other mechanics and like aesthetic? So like how aesthetic, how are yeah. the the kind of like mechanics expressed 
You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. So, and it's funny because I didn't, I rarely thought directly about the world building of the Farmer Meridian. Uh, The show is based on monologues that I wrote when I got bored. So (laughs) it was very much based on character. And so with a show as emotional as the Farmer Meridian, the, the type of world building is designed such that like it feels like there's something fantastical around every corner right and Mm. it almost seems like it's a world where anything can happen but there has to be a core like emotional truth right so for example like we have a character who's a mountain and he talks and he sings and he has opinions about things right um awesome i love it already (laughs) (laughs) That being said, just because we have a talking mountain doesn't mean, like, suddenly fish are going to fall from the sky. You know what I mean? Uh, I think, like, when thinking about genre, I was, because that was one of the other big influences for world building is, like, all right, what are other things that I like? So I definitely drew a lot from magic realism. Some people describe it as a magical realist podcast. I used to agree, and I've now I've come to the decision that something like Slipstream or The New Weird are better descriptors mm. for it simply because magical realism is specifically anti-colonialist and while i am anti-colonialist i would not consider the farmer Meridian an anti-colonial text but that's a discussion for another day um i i'm on board with that <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah i for me the world is always in the service of the characters right so any fantastic elements to it have to be in line with either what the character wants or what the character needs so you know another example would be our main character perry gets a hold of this chalk where if you draw a circle and like think about someone you can essentially create a memory of them you can talk to and that's fun. yeah and the mechanics of it are that if you have more than one person who knows who you're trying to recall you'll get a better i guess like more closely aligned version because it's all about perspective right like my memory of you would be far different than say some of your other players memory of you um mm-hmm. and so like this chalk is typically used for like grieving families or uh like couples therapy and stuff like that um but for our character who is searching for her missing brother and also has a lot of internal struggles um with herself and how she views herself this piece of the world building is integral to the development of her character so like when she first uses it she's trying to talk to the memory of her brother it goes wrong she ends up kind of confronting her younger self who reminds her of like you're remembering me wrong like you have basically denigrated yourself and think so poorly of yourself that you have your memory of your younger self is incorrect because you think so poorly of yourself um yeah (laughs) so um (laughs) it it's it's interesting because like some people when they listen to it it, it might be at first seems like there's like no logic to how the world works. Weird things happen, but it's never weird things happen for the sake of being weird. It's it's yeah. always in the service of the story of the character. Yeah. 
and I think I, I took a note about that, that the world is in service of the character is uh, a key component to any playing in any RPG. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you're trying to create the illusion that there's this entire additional world out there and that it has other characters in it and all of those characters are equally as important as the PCs. But we're all people sitting around a table playing a game. And so, no, they're not. Um, <laughs> yeah. So everything that happens that we see on camera, and in addition to that, I think the things that happen off camera need to be in service of what the characters are going through. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes a jumbled mess. And how do you possibly hold on to that in your mind as you're running a game? That's so much. Yeah, it's so much. <laughs> and it's just, it's a way of prioritizing, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you also talked about the way that you did world building for Far Meridian, um, which is something that I want to call indirect world building. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if that's a, a phrase or not, but it just kind of makes sense to me um, that when you're utilizing indirect world building, you are not um, actively plotting out necessarily A through Z, um, but you know you're going to, I'm going to use the whole alphabet. And right now, I'm just going to look at A, and we'll see where that spirals out to. Mm -hmm. And then we'll hit land on B when we land on it, and, and so forth. Um, which I think is a, a really cool convention. Um, I think what that does is, if you're running a game or if you're telling a story, it leaves a lot of breathing room for inspiration to happen later. Yeah. And it kind of breathes a little more life into your story, I think, because it has that flexibility yeah for sure and and it's interesting because i i'm also working on a another campaign that we call a route 666 <laughs> and it's it's basically <laughs> we're trying to reskin D D with a route 66 vibe and it's like a right you have your party who are all piling into a car and trying to get from whatever we're gonna end up calling chicago to the city of angels and so like it's interesting because I think the world building with that is we know there's a specific thrust of the story, get from point A to point B to point B. Um, but then like the journeys along the way through all these different states and cities and like the different flavors that each location has leaves a lot of room open for, you know, like what's going to happen, what could they encounter. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because I almost feel like it's like railroading your players a little bit, but it's like with them knowing that they're being railroaded of like, okay, we like this is a campaign about getting from point A to point B. You know, it's very right. Lord of the Rings. Frodo starts in the Shire has to get to Mount Doom. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I almost feel like with that kind of structure, it, it, it's almost like uh, the constraints let you be more creative. And so I feel like cool. with Far Meridian, it's like the rules are so open and so malleable in a way that I have to be very intentional with like what the emotional through line is going to be. And I have to be really on top of making sure it's all in service of the characters. Whereas with something like yeah. Route 666, I almost feel like there's weirdly more freedom, even if the overall plot is so simple and defined. Yeah, that's cool. I like that a lot. Okay, so I think that's going to wrap us up here. 
Thank you, Eli, for joining me. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug before we do our sign off? Uh, well, the Far Meridian. <laughs> um, surprise! surprise. <laughs> uh, there are two seasons out and some mini-sodes. Uh, season three is on hiatus. Surprise, we're in a pandemic right now. Uh, oh. But hopefully that will see some movement soon. And I do Moonlight on a bunch of other podcasts, so if you ever want to know what I'm up to, you can always follow me on Twitter. That is at Eli Lizzie Lizbet, E-L-I-L-I-Z-Z-I-E-L-I-Z-B-E-T. I I believe I dispelled that correctly. (laughs) But yeah, so, um, you know, if you ever want to know what I'm up to, you can follow me there. Sometimes I'm funny, you know, you know, like every person on Twitter sometimes is a little funny, Uh, but we have a good time. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Great. Yes. So uh, feel free to follow Eli there. Check her out on Twitter. Um, Also, if you have any concerns about getting started with role-playing games, feel free to hit me up. You can find me on Twitter at Finnegan1. That is F-I-O-N-N-E-G-A-N and the numeral one. Um, Thanks for checking this out. And thank you, Eli, for being on the show. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been so fun to talk about this stuff with you. Yeah. Same to you. Okay. Bye.